new and visiting us today, um, we're continuing on a series, well, you guys are continuing on a series that I'm jumping in on, in Matthew's Gospel. And today we're looking at a really familiar passage, or at least it will be to you if you've been following Jesus for a long time. If you may be newer to following Jesus, it might be less familiar to you, but I believe there's a lot uh, in this passage for us. So we're continuing on in Matthew chapter 5, uh, and I'm going to read from verses 13 through to 16, then pray for us as we, as we open up God's Word together. This is the Word of the Lord to us, church, this afternoon. It's the Lord Jesus. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord God, how sweet it is to be numbered amongst your people. What a beautiful privilege we do not deserve. And Lord, thank you that as we gather here this afternoon as your people, we come here purely by the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, as we sit underneath your holy, perfect, matchless word this afternoon, we pray, Lord, come, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Show us more of what you are like and how you'd have us live as your people. And we pray this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, guys, if you've been watching the news at all, and I love the news, uh, Riley knows it's actually a, an addiction of mine. Um, anyway, um, it's all been about election and the US election in particular, and it's kind of felt like history has been repeating itself all over again. At least it did until a few days earlier. Uh, the polls for so much uh, had been showing that it was going to be a landslide Democrat a victory led by uh, Joe Biden and that Donald Trump was trailing by somewhere between 12 and 5 percentage poll, uh, points in the polls. And so it wasn't even going to be a close election at all. And yet, lo and behold, it was extremely, extremely close uh, and a surprise to many. But it wasn't a surprise to one pollster by the name of Robert Callahay from the Trafalgar polling group, who had predicted not only the result in 2016, contrary to many pollsters, but again had predicted this narrow result in 2020. And Robert Callahay uh, reported that or explained this phenomenon as uh, being caused by a phenomenon called the shy Trump voter. Uh, regardless of what you make of Donald Trump, uh, Robert Callahy had said there's this whole 
group, this whole community of people in America that he classes as shy Trump voters. Writing a few days before the election in 2020, he said the following. He said, we talked to lots of people in our surveys, and I hear things like, yeah, I'm for Trump, my neighbors are for Trump, but there's one neighbor who just hates Trump so much. And when he walks his dog, he kind of wrinkles his nose by those houses, and I don't want him to do it at my house, so I don't put up a Trump sign. I like the guy, and I don't want him to be mad at me. Robert Callahay says, I hear stuff like that all the time. People are playing their cards close to their chest because there's a stigma to being for Trump. Isn't that interesting? And the polls didn't reflect the outcome of the election because there was this hidden community, this hidden group of Trump supporters, people who felt stigmatized by being for Trump and so didn't share their views with pollsters. But here's the thing. Just like this hidden, shy Trump supporters community, it's possible for Christians and the Christian community to be equally hidden from view. Our passage this afternoon shows us that this is not the way that it's meant to be. Now, guys, this is not a corrective uh, message for you guys. Everything I see here at Sovereign Grace Church in Parramatta like, deeply encourages me. I think this is meant to be an encouraging message to encourage you guys and spur you on. If you're taking notes this afternoon, I've entitled this message, A City on a Hill. I've got three points, three simple points that come from the text. And really one driving central takeaway point that I want for you guys, which I believe is the burden of this passage. That's my hope for us as a local church And that is that we would see that the church is not meant to be a hidden community, but one which displays to the world that Christ is in our midst. Our church, this church, our churches, they're not meant to be hidden communities. They're meant to display something to the world, and that is that Christ is in our midst. So just to catch us up to speed a bit about where we're up up to in the book of Matthew, um, We're up to the Sermon on the Mount. You see, Jesus had begun his ministry back in chapter 3 with his baptism, after which he'd gone on this symbolic 40 days journey into the wilderness in which he was tempted by the devil. Uh, After the 40 days of resisting temptation, he had then called his first disciples to himself and crowds had begun to gather around the Lord Jesus. Jesus then walked up onto a hill and began to deliver possibly the most famous sermon ever given. And he begins with the unlikely qualities of those who are blessed to be part of God's people. God's blessed people are to be humble in spirit. They're to mourn, they're to be meek, they're to desire righteousness, they're to be merciful and pure and peacemakers and persecuted even when they're reviled by others. And yet having described the blessedness of his community of disciples, the Lord Jesus now moves to describe two important responsibilities that they have together as a community. But the question that might come up in your mind, like as soon as I say their responsibilities as a community You might be sitting there thinking, but how do you know it's about a community? I mean, he says, you are the soul of the... How do you know he's talking about the community as a whole? Well, the thing is that every time you see written in your Bible that word you, uh, 
you should think, or it reads as though he's talking about individuals. And yet, actually, the word that's written there is plural. You know, I come from a place called Dapto, southwest of Wollongong, and in Doidian language, the local language there, we would probably use the word like use, or use all, or something like that. And that's what you should read every time you see the word you in our passage. Use, all use, use all, okay? And so we can apply our passage personally at the same time. We can, we can talk about it in terms of things for us personally, but it is actually also written to the community as a whole. Can you guys still hear me, or have we lost power or something? We back on? Yep, we're all good? Okay, cool. All right. So in order to instruct these brand new followers, um, Jesus actually takes two symbols that were so common, they would have been clear to absolutely everyone. And those symbols form our first two points this morning. Point number one, as we get stuck into this text, and symbol number one is the difference of salt. The difference of salt. Read with me verse 13. Jesus says this. He says, use are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The salt of the earth, it's a symbol that would have been so clear to Jesus' disciples. You see, in the ancient world, salt had a variety of uses, uses that are somewhat similar to the way in which salt is used today. And the first use was that salt was used as a flavor enhancer, just like today. Job uh, chapter 6, verse 6, Job says the following. He says, Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Salt was used to enhance the taste of something bland. Salt is something we put onto food in order to make it taste better. So then, uh, as the same as now. And so speaking about speech towards those that don't know Christ, Paul says the following in Colossians 4, chapter 4, verse 6. He says, Let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. When you speak, says Paul, there should be some sort of attractive quality to that speech. It should be seasoned with salt. It should be in such a way that it leaves that person that doesn't know Christ just wanting something more of what you have to say. There should be something wholesome and attractive, something, something tasty about the way you speak. And so when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he's saying there's something about your community that ought to be deeply compelling to those who don't know Christ. And yet there's another even more common use of salt in the ancient world, which would have been very first in mind to Jesus and his disciples. And that is the use of salt as a preservative. You see, salt was such a crucial thing in the ancient world because it was prior to refrigeration. People didn't have fridges or ice, and so they would use it to preserve food. And so you can imagine Jesus growing up, watching his mom using salt in the kitchen, rubbing it into meat in order to preserve it, to keep it fresh. You see, the main function of salt was to stop meat from rotting, to preserve it. And so Jesus is saying that as the blessed community, we're to have this preserving effect on those around us. 
Jesus is not talking about preserving the environment or preserving institutional or institutions of his day. He's not talking about that, but he's talking about social preservation, moral preservation. You see, the world in many ways, it seems like a place that's filled with light and enlightenment, doesn't it? I mean, there's so much beauty in the world. There's all this amazing technology. There's, there's so many massive achievements that we've made as, as humankind. There's beautiful cultures and nations and places. And yet at the same time, it's a place that's filled with absolute darkness. You see, people who, according to the Bible, are spiritually dead fill this world. They're physically living, they're alive, they're breathing. And yet, they're morally unable to know God and or to please God morally at all. And so the result is that apart from the grace of God at work in our culture and in our cities, there's this constant social and moral decay, a putrefication of society over and over again. And one of the effects that the Jesus community is to have on our neighborhood is the effect of salt. You see, when the Jesus community, filled with the presence of Jesus, enters a place, the Jesus community, filled with the Holy Spirit, enters a place, the Jesus community, filled with the fruits of the Holy Spirit, love and peace and patience and joy and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control, fills a place, the community is impacted. Like meat that is preserved. It brings the values of God into the community and it can help to arrest decay. See, the Christian community is meant to be salty. It's meant to have this compelling taste, this attractive quality, and this purifying effect on those that are around and those that come into its midst. But Jesus continues on to offer a warning to his disciples as well. He says, you are the salt of the earth, verse 13, but... If the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. See, the truth is actually, salt can't lose its taste in and of itself. It's a stable compound. But what can happen to salt is that salt can be mixed with other impurities and as a result, become completely useless. No attractive taste, no purifying effect. You know, you can kind of imagine in Jesus' day, salt being collected from the salt pans of the Dead Sea, not too far away from where Jesus grew up. And you can imagine this salt that could potentially have been mixed with other white powdery looking substances like sand or like chalk dust. It looks like salt, but it's useless. Uh, John Stott, in his commentary, says the following about this saltiness. He says, Christian saltiness is Christian character as depicted in the Beatitudes. Committed Christian discipleship exemplified in both deed and word. For effectiveness, the Christian must retain his Christ-likeness, as salt must retain its saltness. If Christians become 
assimilated to non-Christians and contaminated by the impurities of the world, they lose their influence. The influence of Christians in and on society depends on their being distinct, not identical. You see, the influence of Christians in and on society depends on not their being the same and identical, but on their being distinct, on their being different. Here's the thing. Living in rich, beautiful Sydney, it's so easy to find our saltiness slowly being diluted. We begin to lose our distinctiveness. We begin to get compromised. You know, our culture teaches you, guys, you've got to get ahead in life. You've got to be ahead of the pack. You've got to set yourself up for the future. And slowly, rather than being compelled by the radically generous example of Jesus, you start to find yourself hoarding, madly saving, focused on shares and buying property. Our culture opposes the idea of sin and judgment, but at first you kind of just feel a little bit of shame, so you stop sharing the Bible's perspectives. But then slowly over time, you kind of begin to question what the Bible teaches until finally you find yourself celebrating at cultural events like the gay and lesbian Mardi Gras or when a friend moves in with their boyfriend or when there's passing of laws that promote practices the Bible condemns and suddenly you've been compromised. Our culture is a person-centered consumer culture and where faith is viewed as something that's personal between you and God. And so when life gets difficult, you slowly stop feeling it about being that group or at church and being online feels kind of nice. And so you start to question, is it all worth it? And slowly find yourself disconnected disconnected from community and church. Now, I've think, been thinking this past week, like, what is it that the average Christian here in Sydney dreams of having in this life? And I'm sharing this list because partly, like, my things that I, I find myself dreaming about as well, like, I think, like, finding the one, you know, and, and getting married and starting a family, like, having a great career with like flexibility to be with family or travel abroad, you know, being part of a great neighborhood, you know, with a vibrant local church, owning a home with a beautiful backyard, enjoying retirement in relative ease. You know what the thing I've been thinking about this week? It's this. How is that vision any different from what every other person in this city dreams of having in this life. You know, none of these things on that list are in and of themselves wrong, right? They're all kind of good things. It's not wrong to desire them, but if that's all that can be said of our hopes in life, are we any different from our neighbors? Have we lost our saltiness? You know, it's also so easy to believe that the church 
is just meant to be like the world in and of itself. You know, the missional movement in the 90s and early 2000s, it was kind of built on this premise, like, if we can just remove the barriers and be more like the culture, like, people will come and they'll come to know Jesus. It's going to be great. And so you play indie rock on a Sunday and, you know, dress in the latest fashion, skinny jeans and all that sort of stuff and meet in a trendy location and serve the best coffee. The problem is... It's the world calling the world, and yeah, well, no offense to you guys, and, the, and there's no salt at all. The, you guys are great, by the way, although I'm a little bit jealous of the location. But here's the point. The church isn't meant to be Instagrammable, you know? It's meant to be filled with broken people, largely not thought of as much by outsiders who others don't have time for and yet have been transformed by Jesus. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way so well. He says, The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. Isn't that true? Here's a question. Let's take it a little bit more close to home and think a little bit more personally. Here's, Here's a question. How about for you? If you're here and following Jesus... It's the hard question. Would your colleagues, would your neighbors, would your friends be surprised to learn that you're devoted to Christ? See, as the Jesus community, we're meant to be a community of pure salt with radical devotion to the Lord Jesus. See, there's something so attractive when a community is living purely for the sake of God and the well-being of their neighbors. There's something so attractive about a community that rather than chasing wealth and personal gain, has the mindset of Christ, humble service and care for others, devotion to them. There's something so attractive that happens when a community, rather than trying to get ahead of others or make the most of this life, sets their hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed to us in the Lord Jesus Christ and sacrifices the comfort of now for eternal gain. And that's the difference of pure salt. The church isn't meant to be hidden by being mixed with the world. It's meant to be pure salt. Marked my devotion to Jesus and all the marks of the blessed community, humble in spirit, meek, peacemaking, hungering for righteousness, the fruit being this attractive quality, something compelling, something preserving, leading others to come to know Jesus. And leading on to our second quality that Jesus highlights for us, and point number two, not just the difference of salt, but the presence of light. You see, if Jesus only explained that his disciples were to be undiluted salt that both attracts and preserves them around them, or the people around them, you might think to yourself, okay, great, Jesus, thanks so much for that. I'm going to move to a monastery um, or a commune. I'm just going to avoid the world completely, and that way I've got no chance of ever getting mixed in with, with other stuff, right? But Jesus wants to address us in that thinking with this second point, the presence of light. Read with me verse 14. He says, You are the light of this of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Jesus says, You're the light of the world. Jesus is helping the disciples see, first of all, that the world isn't this naturally light-filled place. It's not. Jesus is helping us to see, as we saw before, that it's a spiritually dark place. People are physically alive, as I said before, but unable to relate to or to please God morally whatsoever. 
And so the community is called to shine light, to give direction, to display Christ in the midst of this community. And so Jesus draws upon two more everyday images to explain the role of his blessed community in the world. And the first is that they're to be like something or a light that's impossible to hide. And that is a city on a hill. Uh, I mentioned before, I grew up in Dapto, in West Dapto. It's actually, it's a, it's a poor neighborhood, but it's like quite a beautiful place, actually. And there's like the escarpment, the mountains, like right at the back. And I used to, out my laundry window, I used to be able to see the mountains, you know, at the, at the back of my place. And there was this old mine, that, a coal mine out the back there called Wonga Willy. It's, it's, it makes me think of like Willy Wonka, but anyway. Wonga Willy coal mine, it's long since been closed down, but up the mountain there used to be these lights going all the way up and they were apparently the power for the extraction fans for that basically pulled air down into the coal mine shafts for the miners that would be down there late at night. And you could see those lights at the top of the hill from kilometers and kilometers away. And that's kind of the, the pitch that Jesus is painting for us in this passage. You see, Ancient cities around Israel were built with limestone blocks, and so they reflected light. They were very visible. And at night, inside the homes within these villages and towns were lamps. And so a city set on a hill at night, you could see it from kilometers and kilometers away. And so Jesus is saying is, what he's saying is, your community that's light ought to be impossible to hide. More, the second picture Jesus wants to help them to see, is that they're like a light that's very purpose is to be seen. Again, you see Jesus drawing on something that he would have seen performed a whole lot in his life, uh, pouring oil into a small bowl with a wick at the top and lighting that wick so that it would form a light that would fill the whole house because most houses in Jesus' day would have been just small single rooms, right? And so you place this lit bowl in the middle of the house and it would be like, the, the light inside the house. And Jesus says, no one lights that lamp at night in the house and then puts a cover over the top of it. Then they light it to, to actually bring light into the house. It's like no one switches on the light switch in a room and then gets gaffer tape and covers it up and then sits in the darkness. Like, that'd be like, what? What did you do that for? That's just stupid. Like, why would you do that? Why? That's, that's, the light is there to light the room so you can see and go back about your life. It doesn't make any sense. You put the light in the center so that everybody can see it. Okay, what does that even mean? Well, Jesus explains what it means in verse 16. He says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Jesus is saying, our life together as a community is meant to be lived before others. They're meant to see our good works and they're meant to praise God the Father. God has purpose for his community to display truth about himself to the world. But hang on a second. If you've read the Sermon on the Mount, you might at this point be like, okay, wait, hold up, Jesus. Like, wait, doesn't Jesus go on to teach against people who do good deeds in public? Uh, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, further on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. So like Jesus, like, but don't you say don't do that? Now you're saying do do that? Like what's going on? Yes, but catch that end phrase that Jesus says. He says, beware practicing your righteous deeds before others in order to be seen by them. See, Jesus is saying doing deeds to be seen 
is wrong. But this is not what the type of deeds that Jesus is talking about here. He's saying he's these deeds don't lead other people to praise the person doing them. There's no congratulation for the person doing them. There's no applause for the person doing these deeds. There's no parade for the doer of these deeds. Verse 16, he says um, to, to, to do the following. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and not praise them, not give glory to them. Give glory to your Father who's in heaven. These are good deeds that bring glory to God alone. Okay, Jesus, well, what sort of good deeds here do you have in mind specifically? Well, any deeds that point people to what God is truly like. Good deeds that show that God is gracious or that point to God being humble or point to Him being generous or point to Him being compassionate or point to Him being welcoming or point to Him being courageous or point to Him being patient or point to Him being sacrificial. We're to do good in a way that reflects the very nature of God Himself. But here's the thing. Actions alone are not enough. You know, there's plenty of people in this world who do good and yet are completely separated from God. You know, we mustn't think that shining the light of Christ is merely showing people Christ with our actions. We must tell Him or tell about Him with our words as well. We must show and tell. We must display and declare as well. And there's possibly no greater example of a good deed that leads to God's glory alone than preaching the gospel to someone else who doesn't know the Lord Jesus. Again, John Stott says the following on this. He says, Since light is a common biblical symbol of truth, a Christian's shining light must surely include his spoken testimony. Thus, the Old Testament prophecy that God's servant would be a light to the nations is said to have been fulfilled not only in Christ himself, the light of the world, but also by Christians who bear witness to Christ. Evangelism must be counted as one of the good works by which our light shines and our Father is glorified. I think it's so true. Well, here's the question for us. Do we see ourselves this way? Do you realize that you're a lamp from the city on a hill? You know, it's easy to believe that your situation is not suited to shining the light of Christ. It's easy to believe that others are better positioned to shine the light of Christ than you are. Like pastors or like, you know, group leaders or like the really like super Christians in the world. Um, but God doesn't make any mistakes. He doesn't make any mistakes. You've been placed right where you are with divine purpose. Your job, how you commute, what, what sports team you're part of, where you sit at work, it's no accident. Your home, who your kids are, your spouse, the street that you live on, the suburb that you're part of, your neighbors, no matter how difficult they are, are no accident. Your sports team, your friends, the team that you work with, your interests are no accident whatsoever. You have been placed right where you are with divine purpose to shine the light of Christ. See, God could have chosen someone else to live where you did, where you do, but He didn't. He chose you. All of your strengths and weaknesses are divinely purposed to shine the light of Christ right where you are. But here's the honest truth. We all face the temptation to 
actively cover and conceal the light of Christ within. We can do it by a couple of ways. I was just thinking about this week. Here's some personal struggles of mine. Firstly, by having a Christian ghetto mentality. You know, life here in Sydney, it's so busy. We, we love our community, our church community so much. And so the fruit is we can end up never investing in friendships beyond here. We never end up even meeting our neighbors. Our colleagues, well, we never move so close to them. And the fruit is that those in your life in darkness stay in darkness. Held at arm's reach, the light is concealed. Well, here's another way in which we can actively conceal the light within that I think is even more common. By keeping our thoughts and struggles hidden. You know, have you ever thought why it is that we speak to our Christian friends one way and our non-Christian friends in a completely other way. You know, our Christian friend asks us, how are you going? And to the Christian friend, we respond that we're really wrestling with trusting God in the midst of this tough situation. And yet when a non-Christian colleague asks us the exact same question, the reply is, Why is that? We have the conversation in the tea room at work and it shifts to same-sex marriage. And rather than sharing about the goodness of Jesus that marriage points to, you just say nothing at all. And the fruit is the light is concealed. They never get to hear your real relationship with Jesus or the wonderful news that Jesus is. See, we're not only to be the pure salt of God's holy people, but present in the lives of people in our communities. We're not meant to be a hidden community like shy Trump supporters, but one which displays to the world that Christ is in our midst. And that is point number two, the presence of light. But finally, uh, by way of closing our message, point number three, a brief point, on living as salt and light. I just want to kind of pause on this question of how actually do we do this? Like, how do we live as salt and light? Light, And you know what? I, I personally, and I know us as a whole, we have so many failings in this. Like, if we're honest, all of us in so many ways are compromised. Like, we constantly struggle not to embrace the values of this world. We, we struggle with the fear of man. If we're honest, we're, we're cowards. Uh, uh, an example, I was recently like being held accountable by my group to invite a friend of mine. He's become such a dear friend of mine that I jog with regularly to share, the, to in, invite him to read the Bible with me. I was so afraid. I ended up just like like blurting it out, like like really like lamely, and my heart was like pounding, and I was so fearful about doing it. We we get nervous and so scared, um, you know, by the bounded by the fear of man. And periodically, if you're anything like me, we just stop caring about our neighbors and their plight and just become consumed with our own problems. You see, what Jesus is asking of his disciples in this passage, what he's asking you to do in this passage here, it isn't difficult. It's actually impossible in and of yourself. You see, in the Sermon of, on the Mount, Jesus isn't trying to give you a 50-point plan about how to please God. 
He's not teaching a message of salvation by works, by being a good person. He's trying to show this crowd that they are broken people who have come nowhere near to God's standard. In verse 20 of our chapter, he says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In verse 48, he says, You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How we need to hear this message in wealthy Sydney where most of us are convinced that we're good people. In and of ourselves, we are not humble in spirit. We don't mourn. We're not meek. We don't desire righteousness. We're not merciful. We're not pure and we're not peacemakers. And we are not pure salt or lights that shine in the darkness in and of ourselves. And yet sitting on the mount was the one who had come to be all of these things for us. He was the perfect salt. First Peter, uh, the Apostle Peter says, He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. mouth. He was the true light of the world. In John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And he had come to take our place in full. Our failings as salt, our failings as light, and to replace them with his perfect salt and his perfect light. You see, at the cross, when the Lord Jesus hung in ignominy, being mocked and scorned, enduring the Father's wrath, He had upon His shoulders all of our wickedness, and He paid for it in full. And He was raised to new life, to send His Holy Spirit, and to shine the light of the glory of Christ into our hearts. You see, our light is not something that we have made. It is something that has been given to us by the grace of the Lord Jesus. It's reflected light. You know, it's been famously said that if Jesus Christ was like the sun that gives us light during the day when he came to earth, we're like the moon that reflects the light of the sun to the world at night. And isn't that true? And that's why Jesus in our passage says the following. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Not you'll become the salt. You are. And he says, you are the light of the world. Not you'll become the light of the world. You are. And he says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. If you've genuinely put your trust in the Lord Jesus, salt and light is what you are. Attempting to hide your light is like trying to hide a city on a hill. It's impossible. Well, in closing then, how do we apply this message? You know, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I think we apply this message by simply looking at Jesus and stopping all attempts to try and hide. We keep asking him to transform us as we walk with openness before everyone. We have nothing to hide. We've been redeemed by Christ. And even if you're sitting there and you're thinking, you know what? I'm hearing this about this soul. I'm hearing that I'm meant to be light. I'm just not, I'm not seeing it in my life. If you're trusting in Jesus, you are salt and light. And he's working inside of you. And so this is a call to just keep trusting him and go forth and share that beautiful message about Jesus with those in your life. But secondly, if you're here and you're here and maybe you're even just listening online 
and you're curious. I think you'd have to be curious to be wanting to, to gather with, with, with us here. You have to be a fair way along. It's so welcome. Uh, we want this to be a community that, I know Riley wants this to be a community, all of our churches, we want to be a community that people are welcome in. Um, you know, if you're curious and you're saying, you know, I, I, I don't think I've yet come to know Jesus and trust in Him, and you're at a place that we all once were. Every single one of us has been at that place of the outside looking in. And the truth is that there's nothing you can do to make your life good enough for God to receive you. You simply need to look to Jesus, to repent of your sins and believe upon Him. And you too will be transformed into being the purest of salt and the most radiant of light. Friends, I trust we've seen that the church is not meant to be a hidden community, but one which displays the reality, the truth, or to the world, that Christ is in our midst. Would you pray with me? But God, we want to thank you so much for just the privilege of spending time in your word and spending time walking with Jesus. We want to thank you that he's so gentle and kind and patient with us. We want to thank you for this beautiful encouragement, this beautiful truth that for those that come to be part of his community simply through faith, they can be transformed into the purest of salt and the most radiant of light. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to reflect your light to the world. And Lord God, I just want to, I just want to pray that you would forgive us of times in which we actively seek to conceal that light. That actively seek to try and foolishly as though we could put some sort of bowl over the top of it and conceal it. Lord, you know that's impossible. Your light will achieve its purposes in this world. You are far above and beyond us, and how crazy to think we could stop it. And yet, Lord, I just pray that you just reassure us that you're with us, you're for us, and you're working in this community. And in light of that, Lord, knowing the full forgiveness we've received from your hands, we'd step forth towards our neighbors and shine the light that you've given us to shine for your glory until you return. And we praise in Jesus' name. Amen.